Welcome to the Living Faith Fellowship Conference podcast. The Living Faith Fellowship is a peer network of like-minded churches united under a single biblical authority and one common mission. You're about to hear a message from one of the many conferences hosted by the Living Faith Fellowship every year. We pray it's a blessing. Well, let's pray and we'll get going. Heavenly Father, God, we do love you and we thank you that you are um, a missional God. God, that you have a heart for all nations, a heart for all people. And God, help us to get that heart. And also in getting that heart, God, help us to get the wisdom and, and how to execute. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I would say, just uh, getting started, not um, something that was in the notes, but the, the, the comment that Brian made about choosing a spouse uh, is worth repeating in this context. Because choosing a spouse will greatly impact your ability to do uh, mission work, especially when you're looking at the mission field and you're looking at going, right? So if you are single, uh, that is that is something uh, to value, that singleness. That is an asset. That is to your advantage because you're in a far better position uh, being single and free to do the mission than being bound to somebody who is not missions-minded. Uh, as I told some of my testimony yesterday, I had uh, the privilege of having an early start and in, in the Bible and in the missions focus. And so I, I went into marriage with that mindset. And, and uh, as Andrew Ong made mention of last night, I had the same mindset going into marriage and told Rosie, I said, listen, I'm missions first and everything that that means. I told her father the same thing before you give any permission to me, just know that I will take your grandkids away from you and you will uh, not see them for most of their life. And uh, they were all on board with that. So that was, I think, good for us. It set some precedents and it just let everyone know where we were. And if she was gonna say, well, that's not for me, we can shake hands and walk away and that's fine. And that would leave uh, me in a better spot for the mission and, and her too, for whatever God wanted in her life. Now we, we have, uh, yesterday, we have this uh, single missions, girls meeting that happens there is a, a a group there's just a group of single ladies that are out there killing it for the mission and they've decided that you know what husband or no husband whatever god wants we're gonna do it they had a meeting yesterday and they were all sharing life together so some of you who are single yeah i'm looking at you back table guys um be wise in that process be very picky in that process be very intentional in that process be be open be honest up front but also you know for those of us who are married going onto the mission field um this you know is a is a very challenging time moving those first few years trying to get established not that you know some things get better but depending where you're at some things never change and there's things about the mission field that will will try your marriage just like being in the pastorate, uh, it will stress your marriage and, and Satan will attack that and Satan will, will work that. So in terms of also something practical, if you are married already and planning to go to the mission field, well, that's a two-person plan and invo involve your wife. Be communicating with her up front and be uh, making sure that you have her heart and you know her heart. Be sure that you're hearing her. When you get to the mission field for us, you know, it was, we had to be intentional about some simple things, some small things to break just the, the, the weight, the, the, the burden that in some of the darkness that just kind of 
the pressure that was on us and the place that we were. And we decided that, you know, Monday nights are game nights. When our kids go to bed, we're just going to enjoy some time together. And, and in that time, we can play, we can disconnect, or we can talk if we need to on Tuesday nights. We were always tuned in to, uh, to prayer and, and just making sure that, that I was staying communicated with her as a mission partner, but also as a friend, right? Because going on in the mission field, uh, it will test your marriage and it will test your friendship. It will test your ability to, yeah, to love one another. I don't, I, yeah. Anyway, there's some wisdom there. Oh, good. The heater finally kicked on. So what Brian was saying is right. And, and I think every man in ministry and every missionary would probably back that and say, yeah, man, we can't do it with, without a woman who is, who is on board and is willing to go. And unfortunately, there have been examples of men who have dragged uh, women against their will onto a mission field only to result in disaster of, you know, of many different types because they weren't there and weren't willing and didn't want it. So, uh, so take that, single men, married men, and uh, tune in to your wife as you get ready for that in the whole process. So yesterday, I was talking to you guys uh, from, the, you know, from David's life and from Samuel, and we're going to kind of look at some, some stuff from David's life again, but out of Chronicles, just kind of as a jumping point to talk about some different topics. And some of it, again, will overlap uh, with what Jeff said yesterday, and so we'll just kind of run through a few things that I think maybe were well covered yesterday and that were already on the notes, so we'll just kind of hit it and, and move on. You know, you get to First Chronicles chapter 13, and, and David wants to bring the ark back, is what happens there. The ark is, is not with him, and he is desiring to bring the ark back. And it says in the first verse that David consulted with captains of thousands and hundreds and with every leader. And David said unto all the congregation of Israel, if it seem good unto you, and that it be of the Lord our God, let's do this thing. Let's get everyone together and let's get the ark. And if you're familiar with that passage, you know it doesn't go well this first time through. They throw the ark on the back of a cart and they start bringing it up. Uh, and then it costs a man his life uh, in that process. But, but David has this desire. And it's a good desire. And in fact, it's, as, as was said yesterday, and almost we feel like shouldn't need to be said, but it also does need to be said that the desire is this, to, to be in a missions position, to desire missions has to start with you having a desire for the presence of the Lord in your life first. It has to start just like David did with saying, I must have the ark of God. I must have God's blessing. I must have his presence. I must daily be before the Lord. Because if you are not daily before the Lord, and desiring that above all else. You don't want to be on the mission field. As much as you might think it's sexy and cool and fun and glamorous, listen, you do not want to be on the front lines of a battle if you do not first and foremost and above everything else have been willing to sacrifice in order to get into the presence of the Lord every day, every moment of your life. So David has this desire, and with that, there's just a quick thought about testing a desire, because a lot, of, a lot of people might test the mission's desire, right? They might come to a conference like this, or just be in a church. You're, you're, you're in Jeff's church. You are being taught missions. 
you're in this church, you were being taught missions and you were picking it up, whether it's directly or indirectly, just from the people that you're around. And so a lot of you will go, well, maybe God is calling me into, into a specific mission or to a specific place. Well, how do we test that desire? How do I know if that's right? Because ultimately, not, God will not send everybody onto the field. Someone needs to stay with Chris and, and cover Kid Town, right? And there will be ministries that will, will go here. And, and David throws out two things. He said, if it seemed good unto you, then he's talking about his leadership team, his captains of hundreds and thousands. And, and, he, and he brings these, these men in. And he says, let's talk through this. And this came up yesterday. If you are considering missions, you have got to start getting the, that into the ear of your wise counselors around you. Right. And, and Jeff covered that yesterday. And the only thing I would say, uh, in addition to that, would be uh, there is a difference between going to your pastor and telling him your plan and going to your pastor and asking him what he thinks. There is a big difference there. And we've had a lot of guys that have shown up with a plan and have just brought it up here and said, look, this is what's happening. I'm going to move to such and such a place. And God has told me. And then what do you do? Right? As a pastor, well, okay. You, you, tell me more about that. Right? Yeah. Joe, Joe said yesterday, write it down and write it down again and show it to me from the word. And we might challenge you to, to work that thing out. But if God has led you in that and you're sure of that and you're just coming to inform us, well, you're in a very different place than coming and saying, listen, um, Jeff, here's what maybe is going on in my heart. I'm not sure. I, I want to know what you think of this. And that, in terms of communicating with your pastors, is a really important uh, a way to approach that. Don't settle the thing in your heart before you've gone and, and you've gotten everyone else involved. And we have a tendency maybe to, to lean that way because you'll come to a place like this and the, and the response is, well, everyone should be doing missions and everyone should be going. And so you start working this thing up in your mind. And the more time you have to think about it yourself, the more it makes sense. And, and you've built a, you know, your whole life out already in your mind and you've, you've seen it through and it's all perfect and roses in your mind. And so now you're just, well, Chris just needs, Sam needs to know about this. This is what's going to happen. And, um, you know, every, every pastor will respond to that differently. I know um, some may talk you out of your foolishness and some may say, hey, well, if God's led you, okay. But every pastor will respond differently if you come to them and say, I need you to, to help me. I need you to guide me. I need you to tell me if I'm seeing this right. I need you to tell me if I'm seeing, if I'm seeing crazy. And so David says, you know, two things. One, if it seemed good unto all of you guys. And so he's seeking out some advice from, from the men around him. And then two, if it be of the Lord. And those are the two ways that you can test a desire. Yes, God can start to confirm that in your life and God will, but God will also confirm that through those men that he's put into your life. So again, before you're telling them, you want to make sure that you're hearing from God and you want to bring that to him, bring that to your pastor and say, I think this is what I'm hearing. I think this is how God has been leading me. What can, what can you tell me about that? How can you help me with that? Now, unfortunately, you see, David puts that forward and then, you know, um, all the congregation said, go and do it. It doesn't explicitly tell us that he also got a good confirmation from the Lord. And so he might have missed a few things there. And, 
he obviously misses a lot of the important details about how to deal with the ark and you see that play out over the course of what happens in that chapter and so in terms of you know advice and and how to go about it does how matter well sometimes it does how matters when god has already told you how right and in, and in terms of the ark it mattered a lot because god had given very specific instruction on how to move the ark and how not to move the ark right and so there was a how that mattered now how doesn't always matter some of the instructions that god gives are are, are more broad right if you love me keep my commandments well okay just do it just keep the commandments you might set up a structure to help you stay out of sin that is different from a structure that someone else says you might put up different walls in your life and some of those hows may be different that's great right if you know follow me and i'll make you fishers of men how are you going to evangelize well just evangelize right but there are some times when the how matters and this is just another reason why you want to make sure you're getting the right influence david didn't uh, he called the Levites there, but it appears he didn't ask the Levites. And these are the guys that knew how to handle the ark, right? So as much as God may be showing you right now, you need the, you need the Levites in your life. You need the men who God has ordained to handle the word in your life, right? So you need those mature voices speaking into your life uh, to help you make that decision. All right. Now that was, again, talked about yesterday. So just uh jumping on the back of that but there's a lot of wisdom there so it doesn't go well they mess it up uh in verse seven they carried the ark in a new cart Uzzah dies in chapter 15 they go at it again and in chapter 15 and verse two david has figured it out he says and david said none ought to carry the ark of god but the levites so he had uh not paying attention to the how ended up costing one man his life and ended up costing David his opportunity to bring that ark home and to get the, the blessing and the presence of God in his life that he wanted and not paying attention to the house, set the whole timeline back. It had a, a big impact on everything that was going on, right? And so, it, and then David had to relearn this lesson that the Levites have to have a say in what's going on here. And he had to bring them in and he had to let them do their role. And the same thing is true in the structure that God has set up in our churches, that they're there is a role for your pastor and for your discipler and for those who are who God has put over you in authority. You have to bring them in. You have to. All right. Uh, so then after that, uh, as we jump ahead and we'll end up landing just in, in a chapter here in a minute. But uh, this is just um, another practical thought here in First in Chronicles 16. Um, David writes a psalm. He's just giving praise. They finally get the, the ark thing right. And he delivers a psalm, and that's recorded for us. Um, in terms of your, your mission prep and in terms of mission growth, journaling is an extremely practical habit to have. Uh, we are really pushing this year we are going to produce journals that we're going to hand out to everyone who goes on a mission trip for the first time out of our church. And uh, we're going to put some guides in there, some, some things to, to kind of prime the pump to help you understand, help you to think as you're going out on the mission field, as you're seeing a new culture, as you're seeing uh, the, the work, as you're considering missions, as you're considering the ministry. But, but what you ought to have a habit of is writing down the things that God is showing you in your life, writing down the things that you 
uh, our processing through, and just documenting all of that. So you can look back yourself through the process and see what, what was God doing? Because it is easy to twist things up in our mind. We can replay our, our, our memories and we can manipulate them into anything we want. Uh, it's, it's practical in terms of going, we talked yesterday about going on short-term missions trips and how important that is in your uh, growth and, and preparation for long-term missions. When you go on a missions trip, we're going to start wanting all of our people to have a missions journal. Because when you're on the field and, and you're seeing a new culture and you're kind of overwhelmed for a few days by the sights and sounds and smells and all of that, you should be writing that down. You might not be able to process all of that in that moment, but as you come back and you can start working through that with your, with your pastor, with your discipler, with somebody to help answer some of these questions, cultural questions, write them down. Things that you're seeing that don't make sense, write it down. It's just everything. Uh, I started journaling on my very first missions trip and just, I write a lot. I'm still old fashioned enough that I like paper and books and pens and I always have a pen and a book with me. I know you don't even know what a book is. That's fine, journal on your phone, journal on your journal app, whatever you got. But anyway, uh, it is a very useful tool. It is a very practical tool. And especially if you're writing down the things that God is specifically showing you, it will help you to see the steps. And if you take that with you onto the, onto the field, and you get into some of those dark days, those difficult days, as Brian was talking about, is uh, as, as, as sure to come. And you start to go, did I really make the right choice? Like, I just dragged my wife and my two little kids halfway around the world, and we're here, in a, and it's a fight, and it's hard, and it's slow, and all of these things. And I can open that up, and I can just start reading through the things that God had done for me. So it becomes an encouragement down the line as well. Also, as a side note, we're hoping to use that as a means of also just mining uh, everybody's missions experience uh, over the next year in, sh in short-term missions, and we get to feed one another that way, too. So be writing, uh, a very practical thing. All right, chapter 17. This was talked about yesterday, but uh, David wants to build a house. He takes initiative, and he wants to start something new. That was covered. Um, but the default response here from, from Nathan is yes. As soon as David lays out his heart's desire, I want to build a house of worship right here. Nathan goes, absolutely, do it. And, and then God has to come and speak to Nathan in the night. And he goes back and tells him no. But there's a, there's a good point there in terms of your growth and in terms of your preparation. When, when you do, as you are instructed to, try to, to take initiative to start a ministry, and you bring it up to Jeff, and Jeff goes, mm, probably not that, probably not now. The way that your, your leaders respond to you is a good litmus test. If the default answer is no all the time, every time you are looking to do something, there's probably something there. There's something that needs to be addressed. Nathan's default answer to David was, was absolutely, you go for it. God had to come back and change that. And that's a good place to be in. If, if you're going and telling Chris, hey, I think I need to start this Bible study. And Chris says, absolutely, go for it then you're getting confirmation once again from your leader. But if you go to Chris and Chris says, mm, you're probably not ready for that yet. Well, a wise man would, would ask some follow-up questions and say, well, why is that? A wise man would also start to catch on if every time you go to your pastor, he tells you, no, you're probably not ready for that. Well, maybe you're not quite as far along as you thought you were. 
Maybe you're not quite as mature as you thought you were. So the default response, are your pastors quick to trust you? Are they quick to allow you the opportunities? Are they quick to entrust their people into your hands? Or do they always default to, well, let's hold on, let's work on this. Um, so Nathan defaulted to yes all the time uh, with the king and always came back and was willing still to speak the truth, um, which also gives us uh, another wise word. How well do you handle rejection? How well do you handle being, being stopped in your tracks? How well can you handle the, the no or the weight on that? Some of you are probably wired to, to like just go and go now and go all out. And you want the adventure and you want the, the work to start and, and you go and you tell your pastor, or maybe you're even on, on, on the track already. You know, you're, you're waiting to go to Vietnam, you're waiting to go to, but then you say, hey, I think we should go now. And your pastor says, mm, you're doing good, but maybe we need to wait another six months. How do you handle that? And that's just a personal question. That's, a, that's an internal thing that you'll have to, to process through. If your pastor tells you no, what's the response? Well, my pastor's an idiot. He doesn't know what God's doing in my heart. My pastor's an idiot. He doesn't know what God's doing with me. My pastor's wrong. I think we should go now. Or is it, hmm, okay. Then what, how do I stay plugged in? How do I grow here? What can I continue to build on uh, in this time? And so David receives the word. Um, with grace and says, okay, well, I'm not going to build this temple. In fact, his entire ministry plan was taken away from him. I want to build the temple. No. Okay. Actually it was yes. And then no, <laughs> which is even worse, right? You get your hopes up and then, and then the rug gets yanked out from under you afterwards. Um, so what did David do? Um, well, chapter 18, he's actually told, no, your son is going to be the one who gets to build this temple. And uh, David's like, okay. And David gets all about that. And he says, that's fine. He goes all in. I think there's a lot of discipleship principle that then begins to come out as, David, as you look at what David does to prepare the next generation to build that temple. There's a lot of pastoral principles, but there's a lot of mission principle too. Uh, as I mentioned yesterday, I think we can look at this and see that, that David's heart is to establish a place of worship. And, and when we're looking at missions, that's we want to go and make disciples so that God is worshipped in, in that place. And we want to then go and make disciples so God is worshipped in that place. So uh, we're looking to go start temples. We're going to, you know, allegorically. Unless you're mid, literally Midtown Baptist Temple. <laughs> I guess you're making a temple. So, um, so in 1 Chronicles 18, verse 1, Now after this it came to pass that David smote the Philistines, and we talked about that yesterday. He was at peace, but... You know, I don't think it ever took much for David to get excited about war. Um, just, you know, he's that guy. But it, I bet after that conversation he had with God and God has just told him, I'm going to establish actually your son's kingdom forever. That going to war that next morning, he probably went with like a, a renewed joy and a bounce in his step. He's heading out to war. He's like, all right, well, I'm going to help prepare my son's kingdom forever. I bet he was just kind of excited. About, about that fight. He's like, oh, we'll line them up. Let's just start fighting people. Uh, okay, so he's going he's gonna to go and he, he begins this fight. David smote uh, Hadar Ezer and 
king of Zobah and Hamath as he went to establish his dominion. And, and we looked at that. And uh, you know, he, he starts killing a bunch of people. Chapter 18 and verse 7. And David took the shields of gold that were on the servants of Hadarezer, and he brought them to Jerusalem, likewise from Tibhath and from Chun, cities of Hadarezer, brought David very much brass, where was Solomon made the sea of brass and pillars of, of the vessels of brass. So I just think it's cool that immediately what David is doing is he's going to prepare for somebody else to go, right? So he, again, has been had that rug pulled out from under him. So what's his response? His response is, well, I'm still going to support the mission no matter what. And this is the heart that we have to have in our missionaries, whether you're going to go or whether you're going to be effective anywhere in the mission. If I can't go, then I'm going to do everything I can to then support the mission for somebody else. Solomon gets to go and do the thing that you wanted to do. And David says, praise the Lord, let me support that. And he goes to war and it's the fruits of that war that become the materials that are needed to build some of the stuff that comes later on down the road. He starts piling up gold and brass from his enemies. He's, he's just taking the treasure from, from everyone else. And he's using that to store up so his son can go and complete the mission that God has given out now ultimately to his son, not to him. All right, so uh, jump ahead to 1 Chronicles 22. We'll just talk for a few minutes from the beginning of 1 Chronicles 22. So David's not building the temple, but he is going to prepare for his son. And David said, this is the house of the Lord, God, and this is the altar and the burnt offering of Israel. And David commanded to gather together the strangers that were in the land of Israel. And he set masons to hew rot stones and to build the house of God. And David prepared iron in abundance for the nails of the door of the gates and for the joinings and the brass in abundance without weight. Also cedar trees in abundance for the Zidonians. And they were... Uh, and they of Tyre brought much cedar wood to David. And so immediately what David starts to do is he, he begins to prepare. Beyond the war, he just makes it uh, his heart's desire and with intent to say, I'm going to do everything I can to get this other mission done. It's not given to me anymore. I'm not going to Vietnam, but I'm going to do everything I can to support that. Now, I didn't have a heart vested in that like some of you may. If God pulls that rug out from under you, that's a hard thing. All right, so here's what he does. The first thing he does, he starts to pile up iron in abundance. Iron is a raw material that you can then forge into kind of anything you want, right? You can take iron, in this case, it says specifically to make nails, but you can make a hammer or you could make a shovel or you could do all kinds of things with iron. And in terms of, of missions prep and getting you ready for the field, what you need to be doing is piling up as much iron into your life as possible. And what do I mean by that? You need to get as many biblical principles into your life as you can possibly get. That, and then you need the practice while you're here of turning that principle into a tool that will fit into a situation. Okay? Because when you get on the mission field, you will encounter situations that nobody prepared you for. The culture will be different and the people will be different. And it's just like, we never even thought of that in LFBI. And we didn't give you the, the nail that you needed for that. But what we gave you instead was enough iron that you can build your own nail. Does that make sense? And so as you're preparing to go, 
uh, you have got to continue to get practice in taking the word of God and applying it into different situations. So counseling opportunity as a growing missionary is one of the, I think, the most important opportunities you're going to get. Discipling and counseling, because what you do with the, in a counseling ministry is you take that pile of iron that you've been accumulating, and then you sit down with someone who has, you know, a, a problem that's somewhat like a million other people's, but then they have their family dynamic and all these other dynamics that make it a little bit different, and you have to know how to take that verse, that principle, and then mold it so it fits right into their life, right? That's a skill that, that I think we, we need to make sure that we are, are helping our missionaries to develop. Because if you haven't had practice in counseling here, where you have a team to back you up, right? You can, you can give some advice, but then I can go to Kenny and I can say, hey, here's the situation, help me out. When you get there, you probably won't have that team to help you out. I mean, you can call them out. <laughs> Phones make it easy. Uh, but you also need the practice of digging into God's word and laboring and, and struggling with how do I say this and how do I apply this into that person's life? And that is something that we want to, to be getting practice in here. Now, if you can get practice doing that here cross-culturally, that too would be a very wise thing, even if it's not the culture that you're going to go to. If I get the opportunity to, to make any Latino friend, pick your favorite country, right, or, or an Arabic friend or, you know, any friend that I can from anywhere in the world. We have a lot of Indian students here. If I can make an Indian friend and then they start trusting me enough to open up and share the struggles of their life with me. And now I have to take biblical principle, which is universal, but I have to mix it with my, you know, I, I naturally, it's always kind of based in my American-ness and my, my culture and my understanding and the ways I've seen it. And I have to get that principle and I have to apply it into their life and into their culture so that they can receive it. That's a good practice. Find an Indian friend. Find an Indian friend in distress and get close to them and get practice with molding tools. You may realize that you're missing the ore that you need, and so you're gonna to have to go back and do some more mining. You may realize you need to continue in your prep. Uh, you, you may just realize that you have it there, you've just not really learned how to turn that principle into something useful in their life, right? Is that making sense? Ministry gives you some ideas, right? Having practice in ministry, it, you start to realize that in, in counseling, it's a lot of the same things that will come up over and over at the core. Um, but man, when you start adding those cultural dynamics, Jim Mell and I were talking yesterday, um, and he was just sharing some cultural dynamics from Egypt and trying to just to, to apply biblical principle into somebody's life and the challenge that he came just from being new in the country and not being able to to understand the culture, right? So anyway, a good practice, a good principle. You have um, ideas about the, the tools that you will need, but situations will arise that we couldn't even anticipate. Well, what do you do then? Well, 
you got to also be good at at mining. You've got to start digging into the word as well. So a prepared missionary is one who has practice in counseling situations. I think we absolutely need to make sure that our, our missionaries are getting opportunities to counsel men to men, men to families, men and women to families, counseling with children, counseling at every level. Because the reality of, of, of building a church and planting a church, it will bring people from every area of life. You want families in your church and you want to be able to counsel families. You will want to be able to counsel, you know, husbands. You will want to be able to counsel fathers. And so uh, even if you're young and you have no children, if you get the opportunity to start counseling into those people's lives, good practice. Uh, every pastor will tell you, of course, that that is a, a, a big role of what they do. And that will be a big role of being a missionary. So taking general truth and making it work, you know, and it says specifically here that they were piling up nails. Nails are used for holding things together, right? Typically, we drive a nail into something because we want it to stay put. Um, so do you know how to keep broken things from falling apart? In terms of your counseling, broken people will come to you. And one of the aspects of what you want to know how to do is to drive a nail in so that you hold them together. You prevent them from falling apart, uh, preventing things from getting worse. Do you know how to do that? It also talks about using it for, for doors. Um, these are entry points in, into somebody's life. This is a way that you, you come in, obviously, into a room, but also into somebody's life. Do you know how to fit the gospel into a cultural context? In terms of piling up ore, do you know how to build doors that will allow you just to come in and even have the opportunity to speak to these people? Right? In, in a general, in a counseling situation, more specifically with, with the gospel, again, the gospel is, is one and doesn't change, but the way that I share the gospel when, when I am in Pakistan is a lot different than the way that I share the gospel when I'm here. And that is, that came from piling up iron and then learning how to build the doors that I needed. And the doors that work there are different than the doors that work here. There are things that will allow me into uh, an Arab's life or an Indian's life that would have no meaning to an American. And they don't care about that door. And so I also had to learn, you have to learn how to build a, an American door to get into the hearts and into the lives of an American or an Irish door, which is probably a pub. That's the only door you need, right? <laughs> All doors lead to a pub in Ireland. I don't know. I haven't been there. That's a stereotype. Uh, stereotypes are bad. In general, there you go. Not far off, though. <laughs> but this is huge. If you don't know how to get into somebody's life, what are you doing there? Doors are also used for keeping people out, right? And that that too will become a part of your ministry. Knowing how to balance your time, knowing uh, when to wisely build a door that's locked. Um, you know, when we, when, when you're the foreigner in the new place, depending on the place, we lived in a culture where you could show up at someone's house at any time you wanted. And it's, uh, it's a very hospitable culture. So you're required to bring them in and then make tea and probably make a cake and, you know, spend some hours uh, doing that cultural thing, making relationships. It's great for making relationships, but it's not great for this relationship at times. 
because there were times when, you know, we're getting to the end of our day and, and our day naturally ended a lot earlier than theirs. Uh, they're just having dinner at our bedtime and then they wanted to come over. And there became times in order to protect, uh, you know, my wife and her sanity, to protect our relationship, that I also had to learn in an appropriate way to build a door there that said, not right now. I want to have an open door with you, but right now the door is closed. And that too can be a challenge. Learning how to keep some doors closed in order to protect what is going on. As Brian said, you'll, you'll have Christians that will probably maybe become your worst enemy. At the same time, I would say you'll have Christians that will become your friends and you'll have some, um, you know, the mission field makes for some, some unique friendships as well. Uh, you know, in Pakistan, some of our best friends were, were not necessarily completely like us on, on biblical topics. Uh, they were more charismatic or they're, or they're, you know, whatever. Um, but they also made some, some good friendships. Uh, I don't know. That's, a side, that's just a side note that came in. You will, you will find some friends and you will find people you can minister with and you will find people you absolutely can't minister with, but you still will value the companionship. You will still value that. Anyway, building doors to let people in, building doors to keep people out, knowing how to protect your family, knowing how to maintain uh, just some boundaries as well can be very challenging in certain cultures. So learning how to keep those boundaries, but also to keep those boundaries without closing the door completely and forever and without shutting people out. Um, you know, so iron is a very valuable thing. It could be used to make a murder weapon. It could be used to make a garden tool. And this takes a lot of practice because uh, unfortunately, sometimes when we're young in counseling, we're trying to, to make a, uh, a garden tool and we end up making a, a, a weapon that hurts that person instead. And so the more practice you can get uh, with that before you go, the better off you are. We're not intentionally trying to make a sword, but when you start swinging uh, your advice and you don't know how to apply it, it can come off as hurt as, as being more damaging than, than practical. Uh, and it's also said that it's made for joining, you know, um, they piled up iron for joints and for joining things together, which is like with a nail, it holds things together. But uh, being culturally adaptive, learning to be kind of a cultural chameleon, a chameleon for Christ is an important thing as well. I want to join together with that culture. I want to join together with those people. When I lived in Pakistan, I wore, um, you'd call it a dress, really. Like my shirts were this long and you just felt like you're wearing a dress all the time. Um, but there were times when I walked the street and I was going out to meet a friend one time in particular, I was going to meet some friends and I, I you know, just in terms of the way I, I looked, I, I walked all the way up to my, to my friend and I was like, Hey, and he's like, Oh, I didn't even recognize you. I thought you were a local guy. We were looking for an American. And I was like, okay, I'll take that. I think that's good. Um, so you want that on the outside, but you want that on the inside as well as much as you can, you want to try to start to understand what is at the heart of their culture as well. Not just the clothes that they wear, but their heart and the things that they value will be different than your heart and the things that you have valued growing up in the middle of, uh, of America. And so we need to, to learn how to join ourselves together with them. So getting as much iron as possible before you go is good. When you get there, one way, practical way to, to join uh, together with someone is just to make local friends. It seems like you shouldn't have to say that because that's what you're going there for. But you want to make actual friends, right? 
if you're going to a place like where I was, which is, you know, it's the majority religion is also the majority culture and it just kind of defines everything. Uh, I would say you want to make friends from the majority more than you want to make friends from the Christian community. And that too is obvious, but for a couple of reasons. One, because that's who you're going to reach. You want those relationships because ultimately that's where you're trying to share the gospel. But I want that relationship with the majority person as well because they're going to show me how to function in that culture like most of the people do. I didn't want to function like a Christian in a Muslim culture. I didn't want that understanding uh, of the the minority culture. So I wanted uh, a majority friend who is a true friend who would just show me the ways because the ways are complicated. Even the simplest, as Jeff told you, paying a bill will take you all day. Amen. I stand in these dumb lines <laughs> for half your life. That makes no sense. Uh, but you need a local friend. I had a local friend who was a majority. He was a Muslim man. And we became very close friends. And he would, would tell me you know, the things of the heart uh, of his heart and of his culture and helped me to understand things that I never would have been able to dig out on my own and that I also never would have been able to get from a Christian. Uh, at times, he he owned um, like a cell phone shop and I would go to his shop and early days I would practice language with him and I would just sit in his shop for hours and hours a day and talk with him and meet the people that come in. And, I mean, he trusted me enough to leave the shop and, and, and everything there, like I'm supposed to run it. I can hardly even speak the language. He's like, whatever, just take care of people if they come in. I'll be back in a while. Okay. But, but that's good. Uh, and at one point we were, we were having a conversation um, about religion, about his religion and, and about, about Jesus Christ and about Allah and, uh, you know, all the things that come into that about the prophets. And then I brought up Muhammad and we started, I tried to talk about Muhammad. He immediately shut that conversation off. And he said, I will not talk about that with you. And I was a little confused, but he said, listen, because if somebody walks by and overhears that, they'll try to kill you. And I said, oh, thank you for telling me that. <laughs> thank you for loving me enough. Thank you for caring about me enough that you were looking out for my well-being. So he was giving me insights into that culture, uh, big and small, so that I would not get... Um, killed, but also just so that I could not get ripped off. So I didn't pay 10 times as much for my potatoes as everyone else did. So you need a, you need a local friend. Um, and you also need to learn how to be a cultural miner, right? So in Deuteronomy 8, 9, God promises them. He says, I'm going to give you a land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness, and thou shalt not lack anything in it, a land whose stones are as iron and whose hills uh, thou mayest dig out brass. And so as they got into the land, they could build everything they needed because they had it. Well, you too need to learn how to be a cultural miner. What does that mean? The land that you're going to is full of iron and brass. It just looks different than what it looked like here. So you need to master the art of observation. You need to master the art of asking questions. You need to master the art of conversation that is 90% listening. You need to learn to really be circumspect, not just spiritually, but just literally. Look at things as you walk. Americans really aren't good observers anywhere. And then when we go 
you know, on a mission trip, we observe like touristy type things. We're like, wow, that building's beautiful. Let's take a picture of that building. And, oh, wow, that mosque is beautiful. Let's take a, you know, we observe all the wrong things. Um, you, if you're not a cultural observer, just a simple example, Jim Mel said he took a, an American and to a mosque and the American just walked right past this pile of shoes outside the mosque and goes trompsing into the mosque with his shoes on. The same thing happens to us in houses over there. And in America, we are, we are the weird ones in the world and we wear shoes like into the house, the shoes that you've worn out into the field and into the streets. And we bring all that nastiness into our carpet. A lot of other places in the world will take their shoes off at the door, but you're an American and you're not an observer so you don't realize that. And so you just go, you know, strolling into somebody's house with your shoes on. Big cultural faux pas. They're generally speaking, um, people around the world are very forgiving as well, I have found. And they generally know that Americans are dumb and slow, you know, very thick. And so they give a lot of grace. Praise God for that. But you can save a lot of that time if you learn to be just a cultural minor. And I think journaling helps that. So start that early. Um, so anyway, you're piling up some iron, you're piling up brass, you're piling up brass um, without weight. Brass is interesting. It's used in the Bible to build, um, you know, a lot of instruments. It's used in praise. You need to learn how to find the good in a culture. That can be hard sometimes. When you get there and the honeymoon is worn off, this is why that, you know, three-month trip is important because you get past the honeymoon and you get past the pictures of the cool buildings and you get past all the, the fun stuff, you need to have already a habit in your life of having so much brass piled up that you know how to praise in every situation, right? And that you have made it a habit in your life of praising. And even in a hard situation, you're like, well, I've got brass, I'm just gonna build, my, I'm just gonna build a, a, a tuba right now or a trumpet, right? So you're gonna get into a, a different culture and it is, you're going to be there for a few months and then you're going to go, I hate this place. I hate the food. I hate the people. I hate the way they drive. I hate the way they smell. I hate the way they look at me. I hate this house. I hate that I have to hang all my clothes on a line to dry it. Why can't they just have a, a dryer? Who doesn't have a dryer in their country? I hate the fact that the lights turn off randomly and then there's no electricity. Why can't I just have electricity? Right. And you'll find all kinds of things to, to, to complain. about. I hate that I have to go shopping. It'll be everything. And if you let that creep into your heart and take root there, then those those gripes that you have maybe with things and with culture will will soon manifest as as a gripe that you have with the people and will separate your heart from the people. And so you need to also pile up brass in without without measure. You've got to be able to look at this culture and all these difficulties and go, okay, but what can I praise God for in this? What can I be, what can I rejoice about here? Well, uh, there's never electricity. How do you praise God for that? Well, praise the Lord. Pace of life is slower. Hallelujah. I don't have to be bound to my laundry schedule. Electricity goes out. Cool. Don't have to do laundry. I get to do something else. All right, well, just find a way. And don't let the the cultural differences become the thing that separate you completely from the people. We saw it um, with people that I worked with when we would 
have a meeting as Americans and just to listen to the way that they would talk about the people that you're supposed to be there to minister to, the ones you're supposed to be loving and reaching out to. And it's just gripe, 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 gripe. And, and they hate everything. I'm thinking, well, go home. Go back to California then. Take your gripes and go go get your, your washing machine and, and lights all day. Go have it. Go have it somewhere else because you're not helping here. Uh, then also you see that David is, is getting cedar in abundance. Um, and from that, I would say uh, a couple of things. Cedar in the Bible is interesting. It's used in sacrifice it's through, you know, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. You see a bunch about cedar being tied in with sacrifice. It's used in, in and so in the idea of cleansing, of, of, of righteousness, of, of getting uh, your sins cleansed. So you need to have, um, you know, a habit in your life of just staying clean as well, dealing with your sins, sacrifice. Uh, spending time at the altar and making sure that you are, and this goes back to, this is D1, this is basic uh, stuff. You, you got to be right with the Lord in order to be accomplishing anything on his mission field. It's interesting though, because cedar is, is two-sided. You also have the, like, you know, the cedar tree uh, as a type of antichrist and, 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 and great pride and, and, um, we could talk a lot about pride in terms of missions, um, but humility will serve you greatly in missions. Um, so you have the cedar tree in the Bible that when it's standing, it's, ex it's exalting itself, right? And it's praising itself. But in terms of building this temple and in terms of mission, the only way that that becomes usable is when it's cut down. And then they slice it up into planks, right? And so dealing with our pride, the only way that this, that, that, that the cedar is worthwhile is when we have had our pride cut down. And I mentioned it at the beginning, but how do you handle being cut? Because uh, that will be part of the process here, but that'll be part of, of just living life there too. Because in some cultures, they don't use, um, um, there, there's some cultures that are really direct. You, you might have some friends that'll come up to you in your new home and they will tell you things just straight straight on, man, they're just going to hit you broadside with it. And if you can't handle being cut, if you're that tree that has to stand up and swell up and be like, well, look at me. Uh, no, you're not right. Uh, you got to get rid of all that. Cut that down, get sliced up, just become a plank so you can lay down on the floor of the temple that's being built and say, you know what? You're right. Um, so learning how to deal with that, uh, learning how to receive correction well, it will come from your pastors as you're growing and it will come from the locals and country. If you don't know how to receive correction well, you're gonna have a very hard time. It's interesting too, in, in terms of building the temple, um, you know, there was a lot of cedar that was brought in and was applied to the temple. And then it was like all covered up with gold. So it was there, but it was buried, right? And uh, same thing with the stone. They, they spent a lot of time talking about the stone and laying a foundation, obviously very important. And then, then came some cedar and you just cover it all up with gold. And at the end of the day, you know what's there, but you don't ever even see it. Um, again, being, having some humility in your life and not needing to just uh, to flaunt anything or to brag about anything. Uh, in another culture, there's going to be expectations uh, a lot of times that you're rich anyway, because you're white, because you're an American. Um, we worked with some missionaries. I think you might've said it yesterday that like, I don't think they had any heart for the mission. 
they got a salary to live in another country, not the most glamorous country, but in reality, their life was great. I mean, big house, easy life, no real job to do. People that'll come and clean your house for you. Um, I don't know, reminds me of a cedar tree and not a cedar plank. So, and then you see all of this being done in preparation. Obviously, again, this is, I think, one of the, the best pieces of advice that's ever been given that a call to missions is a call to preparation. So David is doing all of this in anticipation of what is going to come. And the more that you can get into your life before you get out of, out of country, the better. So the more practice you get with all of this, um, the better off that you'll be. It's 1220. Um, you want to ask some questions? You want to go eat lunch? Do you want to input thoughts from anyone else that wants to jump in personal or otherwise? Yeah. I think from a leadership perspective, it's, it's very important to recognize that every leader has a different spot. Yeah. to my life and he's given me a perspective of myself or uh, something I'm doing in ministry that I, I didn't have on my own and in the in the moment it was difficult to hear but it was very needful mm -hmm. and I really came to appreciate it because it helped me yeah so. for those online Kenny was saying that every leader has a blind spot and you need that side mirror you need re a rear view mirror you need people in your life who will come and lovingly tell you what you need to hear. That's absolutely, absolutely wise and important. And the mission field is, is a magnifying glass. It's a Petri dish. It's an oven. It, it does not get easier just because you landed. In fact, it will just magnify and intensify the struggles that you already had, the weaknesses that you already had, the problems in your, in your marriage, the problems in your, in your children, the you know, just the problems in you personally, all of that gets magnified. And oftentimes then put on front street for the entire culture that you're trying to reach to see. So yes, you want to deal with those things early before you go. Chris. I got a chunk of iron ore, okay? So I love what you were saying, James. And by the way, this whole thing, is perfect. David is trying to establish a house of worship. What a picture of mission. And then the generational component, I mean, just the whole thing is Brian Clark said, all there is is the mission. Everything else is us just figuring out what parts go where. And, and, and I think that's right. But but anyway, so I love what you were saying, like, like the iron, that's, these are principles that we learn now that can be applied 
in whatever situation and formed into whatever tool they need to be. So, so I've got a, I've got a <clears throat> chunk of iron ore that I've learned that's been helpful and usable in different situations. Because, because you're right, there, there's stuff that's not in the pastor's guidebook. It's like, well, what do you do, do with that? That's the, okay. So, so you have to be able to take the principle and apply it. So here's the principle, and it's expediency. Okay. All things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. Well, expediency means that it's going to be profitable toward a certain end. Expediency means it's going to help facilitate something that's ongoing. So, so here's an example. We know that there's always the work of sanctification. That's, that's an ongoing process. And a lot of our counseling is somebody working through something personally. Okay, well, the goal is, how can this person get through this most expediently? So, so how can they navigate the situation without sinning? How can they navigate the situation without, without you know, messing up or whatever? That, that would be expedient. And then, and then a bigger one would just be, we're called to make disciples. So someone comes in, they've got some given situation. Well, expediency says... How do we navigate this situation such that the mission that God gave us is, 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 is most facilitated? But just the, the idea that whatever situation someone brings to you is not, it's not really an end thing, a discussion unto itself. If we consider what's most expedient in light of what God has already told us, that's the, the principle that can be applied. So I don't know if that makes sense. But, but I've just learned over time, if people can step back and view whatever specific counseling it is and look at what's most expedient, not what's easiest, not what I think, but this is what God's told us. Here's your situation. Let's do what's most expedient. It helps clarify. It, it helps clarify. Yeah. Chris was just giving us some or, some uh, expediency or. I'm not going to repeat it all. If you're online, couldn't hear it. Sorry. That's what you get for not being here. Yeah. Yeah. Questions, comments, other thoughts? Well, this might not affect directly. I, mean, I, I, I love what you shared. I think it's great. And, and I think that there's a lot of wisdom being put out. We're talking about the difficulty of life coming to the surface, um, I couldn't agree more. I, I find it to be a rule even, like you can't even, it, it is the result of culture shock. So what happens is, is whoever you really are deep down is going to be put on the surface, like the, the difficulties of life will bring those things to bubble to the surface so that everybody around you can see them. Mm -hmm. In your own culture, where you're from, you've figured out how to hide them from people around you. You've got these problems in your life that maybe they aren't major, but you figured out how to hide them. So people around you think you're super godly and nothing ever goes wrong. You get out of that element and they all bubble up to the surface. The only thing I want to add to that is just the fact that it's been my experience that, and this is almost like a rule too, like it just seems like there's a magic number out there that it's the first two years. I don't know if that worked mm -hmm. out in y'all, but for us and everybody I ever met, 
if your intention is to be a career missionary, there's something about that two-year mark that either you've figured out how to adjust. I talked about laughing at yourself or just dealing with the problems, receiving the rebuke or whatever the teaching or whatever God's trying to do. Either you're going to learn to roll with that and then you'll be fine, mm -hmm. generally speaking, going forward. Or you won't. You won't roll with it and you'll be firm and you'll break. Mm -hmm. And those are the people that frequently quit and go home. And, yeah. And by the way, if that happens to you, if you're the career missionary that for whatever reason has to quit and go home, that's devastating for that family because they most, I mean, it's the rare exception that somebody lives that path for a short time, comes back permanently, whether their church treats them, they, everybody understands everybody loves them or not. They themselves feel like a failure. Mm -hmm. And it will affect them for the rest of their lives. It's very difficult for them to mm -hmm. come back and land. And these are just observations that I've made to, to just maybe add a little bit to the importance of the things you're you're yeah. you're sharing with us. Yeah. And Jeff, it's a and it's devastating to the mission. Right. The, the home church feels that if we don't and call it failure or don't, but the home church feels that. You know, we've lived that. And you get somebody out there who's not prepared, mm -hmm. it goes sideways, they come home. Uh, if you don't handle that well, mm -hmm. it, it, there's long reaching ramifications. It's yeah. Serious. Oh, yeah. It's that serious. It'll damage the whole mission. Yeah. Important we do it right. Yeah. Jeff and Joe were saying, just back to the idea that who you are at, at the core will always come to light in, in, in the fire. And that uh, it will have long-reaching impacts on the mission and on the missionary. That's the short summary. Yeah. So the the next thing that David does, one word real quick, and he just starts getting people. He puts people into Solomon's life. He gets them all the right people that he needs to. So connections too uh, are an important thing in terms of getting our missionaries on the field. Uh, I know. Jeff and I know Joe because Sam Miles connected us and my life is better for it and my ministry and my and the mission was better for it uh you know and vice versa you know we've all met Kale and, and other missionaries we, we met Brandon uh so taking advantage of connections and and as pastors yeah just getting our people in front of other people the people connection too is an important uh practical thing that you can talk about later but throwing that out there, yeah, you want to be getting connected with, with lots of people. This deputation thing, you get lots of connections. Um, but having someone to open a door for you, as David did, David just went over and said, listen, Lucy, you're going to do this for Solomon. And people, Lucy's like, okay, I'm going to do that because I trust David. Anyway. All right, well, uh, let's thank God for lunch then. Go eat it. God, thank you for uh, this time together, and, and uh, we thank you for the lunch we're about to partake of, and God, we pray that you would uh, nourish it uh, to our bodies, and then keep us safe out on the roads, and, and bring us back tonight to, uh, to worship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope this message was a blessing to you. If you're interested in learning more about the Living Faith Fellowship, visit lffellowship.com. God bless.